for the visitors, I didn't welcome you. I won't say welcome you. I'm glad you're here today with us. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you were visiting or um, have not been with us for a while, we've been, I guess, this is week 11 in Ephesians. Um, we're taking our sweet time. Um, I'm supposed to get us to chapter 2 before Matt gets back. No promises. Um, <laughs> today we're only doing one verse. We're just doing verse 17. Um, next week we are going to combine quite a few and then get us back to chapter 2 in time for Matt to return. Um, today's title is Prayer in Christian Living. Prayer in Christian Living. I remember when I was in college, um, there were, I was at Liberty University, and there were three uh, sermons that I did not enjoy having to listen to. Um, one was on prayer. Um, prayer is one of those things that I feel like I'm never doing right or enough, uh, and it's easy to just have like the longest notes in history after a prayer sermon, uh, and then try to pray those uh, and fall, you know, completely fail. Uh, so prayer was not one of my favorite ones to listen to. Um, sexual purity was not a, a, a huge fun topic of mine uh, back then. And then the third one would be missions. Um, every time I hear a sermon on missions, I'm convinced I'm supposed to be a missionary. Um, but I'm not. Uh, we talked about that back in February. Uh, I was encouraged by Dr. Platt um, saying uh, at the cross conference that we were able to, um, to stream uh, that he always feels like he's supposed to be a missionary and God simply won't let him and he's okay with that um, that's where I needed to hear so that was good for me uh, much to my chagrin though in college we had a special week for each of those three topics uh, so that was a particularly fantastic thing um, that I enjoyed today uh, we're going to be talking about prayer uh, I hope to leave you encouraged uh, and not feeling like I typically did at those times uh, prayer uh, in the life of a Christian is huge. It is absolutely foundational and absolutely fundamental. Uh, it is something that we don't typically preach on. It just doesn't come up a lot for some reason. Uh, but fortunately, in preaching verse by verse, uh, very slowly, uh, we get to spend an entire day talking about prayer. Um, so 10 years ago, not so happy today, thrilled. All right. So here we go. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to catch us up with all of it um, just to kind of give us some bearings. Uh, and because shortly we'll be in chapter 2. So Let's uh, read Ephesians 1 uh, together. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. And Father, we are grateful that you have uh, brought us here together to meet together. Father, I pray that you would enlighten and illuminate in our hearts what prayer should look like. Father, as we take what Paul is concerned about here, and Father, it illustrates for us what we should be concerned about. Father, I pray for your words during this time of speaking and public proclamation. And Father, I pray for our hearts to be softened. And pray all this in Jesus' name. So, it's been like three years since I got to do an illustration, uh, and since the boss is away, um, cookies. <laughs> Alright, last illustration I did involved a giant nail and a watermelon, uh, and that was exciting as we were in Judges. Um, if you want to go back and listen to that, I encourage you, it was exciting, but it was more fun to watch. Um, here, we have cookies, so I need a volunteer. I will select one if there are no hands. Travis, you come up here, I have this for you, here are your cookies, would you please build a tower as tall as you can. Good. Thank you. That's, that's all you can do? It's as big as it gets. At least it's straight there. I think it's better. The leaning tower of cookie. This is your tower, huh? <laughs> okay, so... um. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering why you're not using, you know, all the cookies that you have available. Because, I mean, you can build a lot bigger tower, right? Yeah. I mean, can you build a tower out of these? Yeah. What about those? Yeah. <laughs> Will that do? I can make it higher, yeah. Okay, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, volunteer. 
I just wanted to make fun of you. So thank you for building your, t your tiny tower. Um, why, why didn't he start with this? Did you know that these were back there? No? Okay. I didn't think so. That's the idea. Um, successful <laughs> illustration. All right. <laughs> Here's how it works. What's Paul praying for? Cookies? No. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I mean, if you've got all these cookies, you're not just going to use the ten to build a tower, right? I mean, you would lose that Oreo stacking competition that they randomly do in supermarkets, right? And apparently there's like some championship for that. You have all of these other options. Why don't we use them? Paul's concern, I think, for us today is in his prayer that God would give believers true comprehension and appreciation, first of all, of who they are in Jesus Christ in order that for the purpose, the explicit sole purpose that they might begin to have some idea of how magnificent and unlimited are the blessings that already belong to them and their Lord and Savior. I think that's Paul's primary purpose in this prayer in general that comes after 14, but specifically in verse 17. Paul's concerned that believers would comprehend, that they would understand, that they would come around to resting in the fact, and then particularly to show appreciation for that, of who they are in Jesus Christ. We've been talking about who believers are in 1 through 14 and this magnificent doxology and praise of Paul. But it's for the specific purpose for the specific purpose, he is praying that God will do this, that they begin to have some idea of how magnificent and unlimited are the blessings that already belong to them and their Lord and Savior. So I'm going to keep this in mind. Um, I'm going to pass this around. I bought a little more cookies than I need. First, a believer's prayer is always primarily addressed to God, the Father of glory. It's your first point today. A believer's prayer is always primarily addressed to God, the Father of glory. We see Paul saying, God, to God, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Our prayer should almost always, I say primarily, always primarily addressed, because there are certain instances where it is appropriate to pray to Jesus or to pray specifically to the person of the Holy Spirit. But in general, our general practice as Christians should be to always primarily pray to God. He is the Father of glory. We see that Paul has directed his prayer to God. And this is a designation that links God the Father to Christ the Son in terms of their essential nature. It's important that it be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is the Father to the Son, which makes them the same essential nature. What it, Paul just did in a very short phrase is say that Jesus is the same as God. That's a big deal. That's a big deal when we start thinking about a Trinitarian perspective of Scripture. When we think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are they equal in nature? Are they subservient to each other? Are there three gods? There's one God. But when we talk about the persons of the Trinity, we see easily, very quickly here, that Christ is the same in nature as God, And that's a pretty important thing um, because the glory and the power come from God. And if we're getting all of this stuff in Christ, then if it's not of God, then it's really kind of pointless, right? 
how valuable would these blessings, these promises be if they were in our man, Rusty Johnson, of course, from God? Would they be valuable to you? No. I'm not of the same nature of God. Christ is, and these things come in Christ from God. This is not an uncommon title for God. It's not an uncommon linking for Paul to do this. We see it even already in this first chapter, back in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the get-go, before we start talking about anything related to salvation, we are face-to-face with the fact that Jesus is of the same essential nature as God the Father. But elsewhere, we see this in Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 6, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. But it's not even just a Pauline uh, narrative. It is also found in Peter, in 1 Peter 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. And then John even picks up the same language in 2 John, verse 3. The fact that Jesus is fundamentally the essential, same essential nature as God cannot be overlooked. Well, why? Well, the one to whom all glory belongs, verse 14, is the same essence as the Lord Jesus Christ. If everything is supposed to be to the praise of his glory, then the same one to whom all glory belongs is the same essence as Jesus Christ, which means all glory belongs to him as well as part of the Godhead. And specifically, after the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a title inserted. And Matt made mention last week. By the way, who gave him permission to be funny last week? I'm in the cottage by myself listening to the sermon with my headphones. And uh, I've never felt so self-consciously awkward uh, as he's preaching. And he was actually funny. I don't even remember what they were because I laughed out loud. And then I was like, I hope no one heard that. That would be awkward. Um, and then it happened again. So I don't know what that was about. Um, he made mention last week that uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking about how we can't just skip those small words, right? Let's, let's not overlook these small things that have huge designation for what's going on in Scripture. And so we have a title inserted into this thought line here. He could have just said, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you, but he gives a title, the Father of Glory. So what is this title for? And we've already talked at length a couple weeks ago about glory But here we see a specific title of glory attributed to the person specifically of the Father. Why? But we've moved out of the doxology where we did talk about glory last in verse 14. We've moved out of that doxology and into this prayer. And everything, if you haven't already been able to tell that he's praying about, is what he talked about in the doxology. So everything after verse 14 is just kind of a prayer of 1 through 14. Well, titles, particularly with Paul, are often associated with their context. And they're not just general titles that he declares and decides to attach. It's shocking, right, that it would actually fit the context? Well, 1 through 14 was to the praise of his glory, right? But now he's actually asking for something. Before, it was just simply praise, doxology. Now, he's asking for something. Well, the reason that this title, Father of Glory, is important is because glory in Scripture, and specifically with Paul, is often tied closely with power. Power is often part of glory. Such as, and we read this in, uh, uh, earlier with, with Greg, uh, speaking about the resurrection. But then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we see that the resurrection that he's going to even refer to in just a couple of verses in Ephesians is 
attributed specifically to the power of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is attributed specifically to the power of God. And he's going to bring the resurrection up here in just a couple of verses. But also in Romans chapter 6, we see that the resurrection is also regarded as a manifestation of his glory. So we see that the resurrection was through and by the power of God, but it was to, it was regarded as a manifestation of his glory. So we see glory and power tied together in the same act of the resurrection of Christ. (coughs) So in summary for us, the father of glory is simply that God is the source of all glory and power. Anything that is glorious is simply from him. Matt Papa that I referred to in Look and Live a couple weeks ago when I was speaking on glory uh, uses the idea that everything that we enjoy that is a pleasure, that is something that we would say is awesome, uh, something that is glorious on earth is simply a scattered beam. There's only one source of glory, and that is God. And anything else that we observe that is glorious is simply a scattered, it's a partial view, it's a scattered beam of the one source of glory. So anything that is glorious is simply a reflection, it's a shaded version of what God is. And same with power. Anything that has power is simply given power because of God. The only reason that Satan has any power whatsoever on this earth is because God allows it. The only reason that believers have power is because we have God, the Holy Spirit. So any source of glory, any source of power, scripturally, comes from God. That's an important thing when you're getting ready to ask for something, right? I mean, you could ask me for a llama, and I would be, sorry, you're out of luck. I do not have the power to get you a llama. If you ask God for a llama, he has the power to give you a llama, right? In fact, he may even make it available to me that I may give it to you. But without him, I can't give you a llama. Pretty easy, right? I mean, I know you're looking for deep things today, but... Anything that is glorious, anything that regards power is because of God. So in prayer, it's important to pray, it's important to beseech, it's important to seek the favor of someone who can actually make it happen. Paul recognizes that God is omnipotent and is therefore perfectly qualified and perfectly suited to answer the apostles' wide-ranging petition out of his boundless cookies of resources. All right? God is the one who's able. I mean, he's asking not for no small thing. He's asking for a very broad, broad gift upon the believers. And he recognizes that God is omnipotent and able to do this. And so Paul, with confidence, will begin this prayer by appealing to the Father of glory. So what is he actually praying for? We know who he's praying to, but what's he praying for? Well, in essence, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would be spared from frantically searching for what was already theirs. Paul's praying that the Ephesians would be spared from frantically searching for what was already theirs. There's. I mean, have you ever been looking for something only to have it in your hand all along, Jessica? Right, this is what I live with, all right? You, all right, I'm sure this happens to you too. You're looking for your car keys, right? It's time to go to work. Freaking out. Got to go to work. Where are your car keys? They're in your hand, all right? Same with your phone. Ever done that? I can't find my phone. Where's my phone? It's in your hand. No, yeah. Glasses, right? They're, they're, they're anywhere but on my face when I'm looking for them, right? I mean, that happens to all of us, right? 
They're looking for stuff. Warren Wearsby is a, a commentator on Scripture, and he tells a story in, in regard to this passage of William Randolph Hearst. This is a very, very rich person, all right? And he reads about this beautiful piece of artwork. Artwork collector himself loves the idea of this piece of artwork. And so he hires a man to go and find this artwork and gives him an innumerable amount of resources and cash to make it happen whenever he finds this piece of art. And he spends months looking for this to find out who actually has this, is ready to just write a huge check, add a couple extra zeros at the end, and acquire this piece of artwork for his employer. And at last, long last, after several months, he comes back to William Randolph Hearst and says, um, I, I found the artwork. Um, it's, in, it's in your storage garage. and You've, you've had it all along. So, uh, yeah, you've already got it. Uh, it's very easy for us to be looking for something that we've already got. And it doesn't make sense when you step back and think about it because, obviously... It's right in my hand. It's right in my pocket. It, it's, it's already in my possession. Why am I frantically searching for something that I already have? Rather, Paul would have us see that the great God who is their God is the source of all they need and has it ready for them if they're simply open to receive it. There are too many contemporary Christians today that are praying for fresh spiritual blessings, as though that you're unaware of the fact that God has graciously already given them every spiritual privilege in Christ. I think it's tragic that many believers today become entangled in a quest for something more in the Christian life, something special, something extra that the ordinary Christian life doesn't possess. I mean, they talk of getting more of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessings, a higher life, a deeper life. It's as if the resources of God were divinely doled out one at a time. Here, you can have a cookie today. Don't ask again until tomorrow. That's not how God handles his resources. That's not how he handles his resources. I mean, to say that I want to get all of Jesus that there is implies that when we were saved, Christ did not give us all of himself. That he held on to some blessings and reserve to be parceled out to those who meet certain extra requirements or ask on the right day or when he's in the right mood. Verse 3 of our very same chapter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. There's no need and there's no justification for searching for anything more. Now this certainly has an application on a salvation uh, front. There, there's obviously... An application here for the fact that when we are talking about salvation in particular, it has to be Jesus plus nothing. It's simply Christ alone who earns and gives our salvation. So we're not talking in the salvation front, but we are talking specifically to the blessing side. So when you are a 
believer, verse 3, happens to you. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your salvation is secure, and we saw last week that it is sealed, right? But in living day to day, the fact that we often pray for more, there's no justification and there's no reason for that. In fact, it's an affront to God who's saying, look, I have already provided. You already have it. Why are you asking for it? It's already here for you. Take it. Use it. Many Christians spend a great deal of time and effort mainly looking for blessings already available to them. I mean, they pray for God's light, though he's already supplied light and the abundance through his word. Their need simply is to follow the light that they already have. Use the ten cookies that you have to make your first tower. You pray for strength, though his word tells them that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them, in Philippians 4.13. They pray for more love, although Paul says that God's own love is already poured out within their hearts through the Holy Spirit, in Romans 5.5. 5. They pray for more grace, although the Lord says the grace he has given them already is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12.9. They even pray for peace, although the Lord has given them his own peace, which surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. I mean, it's certainly one thing to pray for these blessings and seeking grace to appropriate them, what is already given, to use them. But it is altogether different to plead to God for something that we think is scarcely available, or even worse, is reluctantly shared by God. Christian's primary need is for wisdom and obedience to appropriate the abundance of blessings the Lord has already given. The Christian's primary need is for wisdom and obedience to appropriate the abundance of blessings the Lord has already given. As I shared earlier, I do not do this perfectly. I do not do this perfectly. I have the peace of God that passes all understanding, yet my heart will remain in turmoil given cultural events. I pray for grace on family members, on other people in culture as I dialogue with them, and I already have grace, sufficient grace. I pray that I will love them, but I have the power of God to love, the Holy Spirit in me to help me love. I pray for strength to endure difficult events, even though I should know that it is Christ who strengthens me. I pray for God's light, even though I know he's already provided everything I need in the word. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? I think it's simply because the box has veiled us. The box is covering all the cookies, and so we can't see them. And so we won't use them. But when we understand what's before us, we can use them. Now certainly this tower won't reach to the ceiling, but you can make a pretty impressive tower. You can reinforce it with extra circles. I mean, 
if you really wanted to, I mean, if we had some like structural engineers, mechanical engineers, you could like take them apart, scrape the cream off, and use it as like mortar, right? Break the cookies in half. I mean, you can go hardcore with these cookies. We have the resources that we need. Our problem is not lack of blessings. Our problem is a lack of insight and wisdom to understand and use them properly and faithfully. Our problem is not a lack of blessings. I mean, this, this is, they're like a $1.25 a pack, and I can only justify six packs, um, and even that was difficult. Um, you can get cases of cookies, like shipping containers full of cookies, of all the resources that you possibly need. It's not that we lack blessing. We have everything. Our problem is a lack of insight and wisdom to understand and use them properly and to use them faithfully. Our blessings or our riches, another way to say that, are so vast that we cannot even comprehend them, let alone the position that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. I have a terrible time trying to imagine large quantities of things. I like coffee. Robbie and I are working on opening a coffee shop. We want to roast our own beans. We were informed that Pete's Coffee... Uh, some of you are familiar with them as a competitor to Starbucks. Pete's Coffee is a much smaller competitor to Starbucks. Roast 22 shipping containers full of green beans every day. That's a lot. You can go swimming in that. I can go swimming in that. It'll probably hold me up. 22 shipping containers. I can't even fathom that, and that's a small number. And sitting in, the, in, in Lake Huron this past week, looking at, at the water, and the water has risen by a meter. These weird, weird things. That's like three feet for us, all right? That's a lot. That's a lot of water. How, how can a lake that big possibly fluctuate so much from year to year in water? It's full of water. I can't comprehend these things. Sand? How in the world are you going to try to estimate the amount of sand? I'm terrible at estimating these big things, and the fact is, is that we have more blessings than those things even represent. We have more blessings, more resources in Christ because of God than 22 shipping containers could possibly represent. More than an entire shipping yard, more than all the sand in the seas, and more than all the water in the oceans. We cannot comprehend these things, and even worse, we can't even possibly begin to understand the position that we have in Christ. When I talk about the position that we enjoy, this is that idea of being an heir of the inheritance that's coming in verses 1 through 14. The idea of being a son and daughter, son of God. We recognize the idea of it, but how does it even register in our minds? Only the Holy Spirit Himself can search the deep things of the mind of God, and only the Spirit can bring them to our understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9-12 through 12 says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of men, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. See, God's deeper truths cannot be seen by our eyes. They cannot be heard with our ears, and we cannot comprehend by reason or by intuition. They are revealed only to those who love Him. 
Because I do not know what Greg is thinking because I do not have the spirit of Greg. Only the spirit of Greg knows what Greg is thinking. And he doesn't know what Rusty is thinking because he doesn't have the spirit of Rusty. Only the spirit of Rusty knows what he's thinking. We can't know what God is thinking because God has a spirit. Now, spirit knows what God is thinking. But that spirit's been given to us. And that's how we begin to know the things of God. And so as we think about these massive amounts of resources that we have, these cookies, we need to understand that while every Christian does, yes, genuinely have needs, physical needs, moral needs, spiritual needs, for which you do need to ask for the Lord's help, no Christian needs or can even have more of the Lord or his blessing and inheritance that he already has. There's, there's no more. That's it. You get it all. You get it all. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians and tells us not to seek more spiritual resources, but to understand and use those that we were given in absolute completeness the moment that we receive Christ. This receptive attitude and awareness requires God himself to give it to you because it's his spirit that helps you see it. And conveniently, Paul prays for that. <laughs> he prays that he may give the spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, in going verse by verse, Matt and I have brought some small things, interpretive challenges to your attention um, because we can. And if we were doing larger pieces, uh, we would probably just skip over them in the preaching format. But there's a question here in your text. How many of your Bibles say, may give a spirit? A spirit? How many of them say the spirit? Okay, there's a difference, right? A spirit, the spirit. If it says the Spirit, it's probably capitalized, right? Yeah? Okay. So is it the Spirit or a Spirit? Because that's kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> well, let's talk about a Spirit, a lowercase spirit. I just got finished telling you that you can't have any more and that nothing was withheld. Okay? So is there a way to interpret this? Yes, God knows. Do we? No, I can't, I can't say yes, this is the way. I'm going to give you two options. And I'm going to lean towards the latter. So the problem I have with a spirit is that you can't have any more. And there's nothing left to give. Because everything was given. Nothing was withheld. And so some are taking a spirit, and they interpret it this way, along the lines of like a disposition. Or an influence, an attitude. Kind of like he was in high spirits today. Or blessed are the poor or humble in spirit. It's kind of like an attitude, a, a disposition that they have. And so they would articulate this specific prayer as praying for God to give the Ephesians a special disposition or an attitude of wisdom. The fullness of godly knowledge and understanding of which the sanctified human mind is capable of receiving. It is an augmenting disposition of wisdom. Basically saying, let them know how much they possess in your son. And they're praying that the Holy Spirit would give our spirits the right spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. You see the problem with that? Everything that they're saying is right. It's just not a spirit. So it is God giving them a attitude, disposition of wisdom. Okay. And it is knowing how much they possess in the Son. 
But whose job is that? I mean, what qualifications, what roles did I just describe? The Holy Spirit's job. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So it, first of all, you have the problem of adding a spirit into someone as if you can get more. You, you can't. You can't. It's God the Spirit. That's it. You have all of it. There's no special adding. There's no special dispensation. There's no special anointing that even happens. It is simply, you have the Spirit. And so, you, first of all, you can't add, but even then, the things that they're saying that it does are precisely what God the Spirit does. So don't understand it as getting more of the Holy Spirit or some special anointing. We're talking about the primary function of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Illumination. Illumination of God's Word. We're going to describe exactly what that means in just a second, so hang on to that idea. Illumination. All these things a spirit would do is precisely what the Holy Spirit does always. Make sense? Again, easy thoughts today. I'm not deep. You can't add more, and all these things that the Spirit's doing is what the Holy Spirit does. So I am in favor of translating this, the Spirit. This is the Spirit, that God would give the Spirit to his believers, because he's already done so. So how do you justify the giving idea? But we're talking about a specific flavor of what the Holy Spirit is doing. There are many roles that the Holy Spirit plays. One is conviction of sin. All right, we talked about that um, in Home Gathering a couple of weeks ago. There's the idea of the sealing aspect of the Holy Spirit. There's the idea of the uh, prayer and praising that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf to God. So there's a lots of different things that the Holy Spirit does, but one of the primary flavors, if you will, is illumination. And so what I mean by illumination is that scripture speaks of him, that is the Holy Spirit, as the spirit of truth or the agent of revelation or specifically for us, the teacher of the people of God. Again, it's not that he's adding or giving more of the spirit than we already receive or been sealed by, but rather that we may and should pray for his ministry of illumination. What he's specifically praying for is just that ministry of God in our life. He knows it's there. He knows that that's what he does, the Holy Spirit. And so he's praying that he would do it. Now, what is illumination? Again, it's this idea of revelation, this idea of, um, of helping us truly understand what we're reading. For instance, we must have illumination to understand the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, apart from the Holy Spirit, so apart from the Holy Spirit's work, in our lives, it is easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person the gospel. I've never seen a, a vegetarian tiger. Why? Because it's like impossible to do. They like meat. I like meat. I'm a tiger. That's how that works, right? Um, I can identify however I want to. Um, the only way that we can properly, properly, okay? You can understand it in any way you different want to. But the only way that we can properly understand the Word of God is through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. What I mean is that those who are not believers cannot properly understand the truth apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit works not just in the indwelling of believers, but also at large in the world. And so the way that unbelievers, people who have not uh, receive Christ and, as their Lord and Savior, understand Scripture and properly in order to come to a saving faith is by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life as He softens their hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that allows believers to rightly and properly understand Scripture, and for those who are not 
yet regenerate to come to saving faith in Christ and even then receive the indwelling of the Spirit themselves. So illumination is absolutely fundamental to what goes on in the life of a believer. Now, we haven't really gotten to the idea of our component aspect of prayer yet that's coming, but in the Christian living aspect, we need to understand that apart from the Spirit, we're tigers trying to learn how to be vegetarians, and it won't work. We have to have the revelation of the Spirit. So literally, what Paul is praying for, if you want to stretch it out with more words than it really is, he's saying and praying for the Spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of him, and the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. Right? So he's praying for wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, you have to take that word to both of them. Both of those into the knowledge of him, essentially to know him better. He's praying for the believers to know God better. And the only way that he knows that will happen is through the Holy Spirit and its wisdom and in its revelation. Does that make sense? That's the crux for today. Let's define our terms a little bit. Revelation is specifically dealing with God's imparting knowledge to us. The spirit of revelation, the fact that God has imparted knowledge to us. I mean, a major component of this would be the removing of the veil. The idea that we can't see things as they truly are when we are unregenerate. When we are dead in our sins and we have not yet been saved and sealed by the power of God. We can't see rightly. There's a veil in front of our eyes. And when the veil is removed, we can see accurately. And so revelation of imparting knowledge to us, a major component of that is God removing the veil. But then as the believer has had the veil removed, we go forward in Christian living by learning more, more imparting of knowledge. God has revealed himself to us perfectly in the word. And we continue to seek that and grow in that knowledge. And so wisdom then deals specifically with our use of that knowledge. You acquire this knowledge, it's been revealed and imparted to you, but we actually have to use it if we want to live in wisdom. We must know and understand our position in the Lord before we're capable of serving him. If you don't understand who you are and where you are, then you won't know how to act. It's like starting a new job and saying, all right, go for it. I don't even know. I, I didn't tell you what we're doing. I didn't tell you what your role is. I didn't tell you what position you have. You don't even know when lunch is. What are you supposed to do? Now, it's different if I say, okay, I'm a software engineer, and I work under this guy, and I work from 7 to 3, and lunch is at uh, 11, and um, if you have any questions, my office is in 302, and I can answer any questions you have. There's some position there. You can at least fake it, right? If you don't know what your position is, then we can't act accurately. But not just that, we need to know what we have before we can satisfactorily use it. You can't build a tower of more than 10 cookies if you don't know you have more than 10 cookies. I love cookies. It's simple, right? And so finally, knowledge, revelation, wisdom, and knowledge of him. Now look at the double emphasis on it. It's a revelation of knowledge. It's a wisdom of knowledge. We can't overlook this emphasis on it. There's a growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. Let's start there. Growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. And he's praying that we may come to know truths about him, God. 
There is no higher knowledge than the knowledge of God himself. There's nothing more. He is the author of knowledge. He is all that is. Everything that is is because of him and through him. And so for us, when we look at knowledge and how it relates to holiness, we need to understand that knowledge, knowing our position, knowing the resources that we have, is absolutely indispensable and fundamental to growth and holiness. Christian, you will not grow in holiness if you're not growing in knowledge of God. D.A. Carson says, what is the greatest need in the world today? The one thing we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. This guy is brilliant, and that is a simple, simple statement. We need to know God better. The last point, the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life is about knowing God. The beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life is about knowing God. The beginning, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know the one and only true God, the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus even told some who were doing ministry in his name, I never knew you, depart from me. Knowing God is the first step. The beginning, the middle, Paul writes, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3. In the end, John writes, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. My favorite verse in the entire Bible. We will see him as he is. The Christian life is about moving to seeing him as he is. But the Christian life is also about knowing God and making him known to others. In the beginning, you have to know God to be saved. In the middle of your Christian life, knowing him more. In the end, you will know him because you will see him as he is. Right now we live by faith, as he talked about last week, and the things that we cannot see. But there is coming a day, believer, when you will see him as he is. And you will know God intimately. So now we have to be about making God known to others. The only way you can make God known to others is by knowing him yourself. And J.I. Packer and Knowing God, the seminal Christian work, he says that those who know God have four characteristics. These are convicting and not fun. Write them down and rate yourself later. All right? Great energy for God. Those that know God have four characteristics. Great energy for God. Great thoughts of God. Great boldness for God. And great contentment in God. Paul's view of knowledge is largely determined by the Old Testament. And no surprise, Paul is, was a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? He knew his Old Testament and so his idea of knowledge is largely determined and informed by the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea to know God means to be in a close, personal relationship with him because he's made himself known. In fact, that's why the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was so significant. God at Sinai was not only present on the mountain, but he gave the law, the Ten Commandments and all the law that followed it. That was his revealing of himself. The Ten Commandments are characteristic indicators of who God is what his essential qualities are the knowledge of God according to again to the Old Testament begins with the fear of him 
And it's linked with his demands of holiness. And it's often described as knowing the will of God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. This idea of knowing God is not meant to be a mental assent, a simple acknowledgement of God. As in, I, I know who our president is. It's, it's not that kind of knowing. It's not, I know who, you know, Urban Meyer is. It's not random people that I simply acknowledge they exist. I don't really know. And I'm not talking like Adam and Eve know. Okay, that's a different one that we'll save for the bedroom. Um, this is a knowing relationship, all right? I know you guys, most of you. I have relationships with you at various levels of intimacy. It's not just an understanding that you exist. Our relationship with God is meant to be an intimate relationship. That's why you have these four characteristics. Great energy, great thoughts, great boldness, great contentment. These things come because of the relationship. I have great energy for my wife. I have great thoughts for my wife. I have great boldness with my wife. I have great contentment in my wife because I'm growing in deeper intimate relationship with her. As we know each other better, these things will increase. As we know God better, these things will increase. Our relationship with God is meant to help us understand that first aspect, that position. And as you know your position better, you know the resources that are there. As I know my wife better, I know what skills she possesses. I know what things she likes to do. I begin to understand the resources that come with my wife. Same is true with God. So I think the problem is that we typically fail to seek illumination. And the way that we understand who God is, is through his word, as I've already said, we, seek to, we fail to seek illumination because we have, I think, often, I, an inflated view of ourselves. I think we're often tempted to feel self-sufficient with God's word as if we do not need God's help. I, I can read. I know English. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I'll handle this. Psalms 102. And I can perfectly divine the understanding of it, right? That's how it works. That's the way, if we're honest, I think most of us probably approach Scripture. I think it's, I think it's often the fact that we are relatively self-sufficient in these things. And the problem is, is that self-sufficiency isn't a choice. It's something that we just are. This was revealed again to me this past week. Um, my vacation was wonderful. Uh, I'm sharing the, the downside of the vacation. Uh, on Wednesday, we're eating breakfast. Um, I finish my plate. I come into the kitchen, and Jess and her dad are frantically um, doing stuff. What's going on? Adeline swallowed pills. Okay. Why are we still here? <laughs> um, she's, she's got into uh, my, my mother-in-law's uh, pillbox. When you're on vacation, things are not baby-proof. You have to get into your rhythm of baby-proofing again. So she swallowed pills, we think. We don't know what kind. We don't know what they are. She's unavailable because she's out there, and Canadian minutes are expensive um, and not set up on our phones, so we can't access her. We don't know what's going on. So I say, let us go to the hospital together. Instead of trying to figure out what these are now, we will let them do it. So we go to the hospital, and Adeline now has some nice PTSD uh, with needles, uh, with people even washing her chest. Um, it's, it's pretty bad. She... Um, She's fine, as you, you probably heard and seen this morning. Um, but they wanted to keep her for 12 hours. And uh, they were poking her and giving her regular uh, arm hugs as they check her blood pressure. Um, not an exciting feeling for a kid. 
all of this was just awful. It was absolutely awful. Um, for me, again, it's similar to even when Avery was born and we uh, had to had to scare with her not breathing and then being super cold um, and having to put her under the baby heater. I don't know what the word for that is. Um, it just exposes exposes you. Um, but as a father, I think I think at least for me, the worst place to be is helpless. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can do. I mean, Jess and her dad were using their medical knowledge to try to figure out what the pills are, what's the danger, can we you know, try to make her throw up and all that stuff. And uh, I'm like, is it a vitamin or is it like prescription? It's like prescription. Okay, we're out of my league, let's go. Um, that's, that's all I know. I was like, call Colin. I seriously, I told her to. Um, but I was like, I, I don't know what we're doing. Let's go. Let's go to the professionals. Let's at least get to the hospital. We get there. They're poking her. She's crying. You're trying to calm her down. She's two, and people are stabbing her. How do you understand that? And absolutely helpless. It's not just helpless to be able to, you know, assist her, but even to try to comfort her. My, my role is comforter, at least at the very smallest. It was like impossible. How do you comfort a two-year-old? And so there was literally... Nothing I could do but be there. Well, apparently that worked, from what I've heard. So I'm thankful for that. But there's nothing, nothing I can do. I was driving back to the cottage to pick up our stuff as we had to spend 12 hours there as they observed her um, to get some clothes and other things because we rushed off. And I praying, I was like, God, I, I, uh, I, this is awful. I hate this. I know this is your plan. I believe that you're provident. I believe that you're sovereign. I believe that you ordered for her to take those pills. Why is my heart in a bind? Why can't I trust you? In any outcome, whatever the outcome may be, why am I having trouble trusting you? I know these things. Help me love them. In my weakness, your strength is supposed to shine. I need that. Now. Why can't I have it? My understanding of my role of father, husband, pastor is wrapped up in self-sufficiency. And knowing the words that I can simply recall it. Knowing God's word enough to simply be able to recall these verses to mind is not enough. It's not enough. Being able to give an Old Testament survey without notes is not enough. You can't have enough. It has to be illuminated in your heart. You have to love it. And only God can do that. And so I got to learn over 12 hours what it means to really trust God. I was very adamant about writing down all my feelings, as melodramatic or overdramatic as it may be, because I don't want to experience this again. I don't want to have to learn it again. So I'm reading through a biography on John Newton, who's the author of Amazing Grace. He was a slave captain, a slave ship captain. I mean, this guy was hardcore. He was converted. and was a phenomenal pastor and hymn writer and wrote the most popular hymn that Americans know, Amazing Grace. He worked co closely with William Cowper. You're familiar with him, although you don't know it. He was a great hymn writer as well. They worked together. And William Cowper was losing his mind. He was uh, um, 
delirious. He was schizophrenic. He was losing his mind. And on the night before he really was going to descend into despair and into madness, as they would call it, he wrote this poem. It's a hymn. I'm going to read it as a poem. It says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, take, uh, I'm sorry, fresh courage, take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. It is precisely what I needed that day as I'm reading that in the hospital. And helped me understand the illumination happened in my heart as I understand who God is and the fact that I am helpless. Because in the moment, I just felt helpless in the situation. And God used that day to help me see that I am helpless in every situation. It's easy, believer, to say, yes, I was dead in my sins. And if it were not for the grace of God, I would not be saved today. And to forget the fact that you were dead helpless on your sins. But the power of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit in your life is what helped to bring about regeneration in your life. And so now as you live out your life, as you understand your position in God and you understand the resources that you possess, how do you still maintain the idea that I'm helpless? Because even when it comes to knowing the Word, I can't know it apart from God. I can memorize it as Paul memorized the first five books of the Bible, yet still threw rocks at Christians. I can recall chapters, verses, quotes, all these different songs in the moment of suffering and it not have any effect. I'm helpless apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think when we read Scripture, we need to approach from a helpless stance. I prepare sermons. I begin from a helpless stance. Father, I won't understand this accurately. I won't be able to apply it to my life appropriately. And I certainly will not be able to proclaim it in front of others and try to apply it to the various places that they are in life, if not for your power and illumination. I want to encourage you to Begin from a helpless state when you read Scripture, knowing that you have help in the, the Spirit. I think that we fail to seek illumination because we have an inflated view of ourselves. I pray that God will humble us painfully, if it may be, to help us see that we are not self-sufficient. But I think the flip side to that, uh, if you are afraid of... so, it, For some of us, we read scripture assuming too much that we can understand that we can unlock it. I think some people understand that the Bible is too deep for them. 
for us. They are helpless, and therefore then they think that there is no knowing God's Word. And so you either don't read it or you read it weekly. I want to encourage you that I think you have a low view of God. I think you have a low view of God. Remember Paul's view of God, the Father of glory that he described earlier? This is a God that is intimate, near, and gracious to his people, like a good father. But he's also glorious in his majesty, his transcendence, his goodness, and his power. Have a high view of God. It's good that you have a humble view of yourself. You understand that you are not self-sufficient. You are helpless to understand the word of God, and it is magnificently deep. You'll never get to the bottom of it. And even the whole of Scripture is not the full revelation of God. It's simply what he's chosen to reveal to us in the mystery, as we see in 1 through 14. God can help you understand it. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That is its chief business, is to illuminate the hearts of men to the truth of God. Have a high view of God. He is powerful. And he's glorious. So how do we get knowledge? Well, that's the last piece. How do we get this knowledge? What specifically is the Holy Spirit illuminating? His Word. We have to abide in the Word. We must abide in the Word. Christian, you will not know God if you are not in His Word. You will not grow in those four characteristics if you are not in His Word. You will not grow in holiness if you are not in His Word. You will not be overcoming sin if you are not in His Word. You will not worship rightly if you are not in His Word. Abide in it. Abide in the word and never leave it. To abide in the vine. If you have your Bibles, please return with me again to John 15. I read the last half of it this morning. When we began, I want to read the previous half here at the end. John chapter 15, we see that Jesus says that I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abide in the word. The only way you will have this joy, the only way that you will have this love, the only way that you will grow in holiness as you keep the commandments is to know the commandments, to abide in the word. So, prayer and Christian living. We talk a lot about Christian living and a little bit about prayer. Let's finish with prayer. How does this idea of true Christian living inform the way that we pray for that Christian living? 
The fact that we need to understand our position in God and then the resources that He provides for us. How do we utilize these things in our prayer? How do we take Paul's example of this prayer and put it in our life? Well, to use a model that we've talked about before, the Acts model of praying, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We've talked about it before. It's not the only way to pray. I just want to use it as a model to, to help apply this idea. When we pray... When you pray this week, such as most of you will probably be tempted to pray for your food at lunch, right? What do you pray for when you pray for your food? Ask the blessing, right? Blessing food that God has already provided. Blessing a blessing. Right? That's what we're doing? Blessing a blessing? Why do we bless our food? It's already blessed. It's already provided. Hey, that's, a, that's how easily this creeps into our minds where we think that we've got to ask for things that are already ours. Now, yes, it's appropriate to thank God for the food that he has provided. God can't bless pizza. Pizza's pizza. You're not going to make it better by blessing it. Cookies are cookies. You can bless this whole bowl. It's going to be holy cookies. And they have the same amount of calories as those ones. All right? Can't bless food. It's, it's right to thank God for these provisions, these enjoyments, these pleasures, these scattered beams. But this is something he's already provided. So I want you in your prayer to think through the things that we keep asking for that we've already got. I, I do it all the time. I've caught myself all week doing this because of the sermon. So you're welcome. Um, it's hard. It really is hard to pray in such a way that we're not asking for something that we already have. Now, think about it this way. If we want to pray appropriately with this Acts model, we start with adoration. This is fashioned after uh, the, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, these, these aspects. So adoration, he begins with adoration. Uh, how do you pray with adoration? I think sometimes we pray with adoration thinking, uh, God, you are, you know, glorious, and you love me, and I don't really have any more. How many characteristics of God do you know? What attributes of God are you aware of? If you want to pray better, if you want to pray in proper Christian living, not asking for things that you already have, but knowing in wisdom and in revelation to be able to pray the way that he has revealed himself to you so that you may know him better, you need to know the attributes of God. You know the attributes of God by knowing the word. As you grow in knowledge and revelation of knowledge and then applying that in your prayer life, you should be able to say things about God that are better than God you are loving. God, you're glorious. You should be able to say things like, God, you're provident. You give everything that I need all the time. You always take care of me. But I know that you are omniscient. You know everything there is to know because you are the author of all knowledge. And Father, I want to know more of you. You know things about God. Like he is omnipotent. You can pray in this idea of glory and power that we're going to see illustrated specifically next week. And Father, you are capable of anything. And Father, you've promised us everything in Christ. As you begin to develop a higher view of God, you'll be able to adore him better because you know his attributes better. When we talk about confession, I think we usually skip this one. Um, confession. Know yourself better. How do we know ourselves better? Scripture got to know the word. 
God's words what revealed all of these faults in me on Wednesday at the hospital. I have too high a view of myself. It's not overwhelming pride that I trumpet in fashion, but when I deal with myself and my spirit between God and myself, I have too high a view of myself. It comes out in reading um, biographies of great men. John Newton gives three categories of Christians in their walk, and I place myself in three, and then he tells me in the next paragraph that this guy, who's way better than where I am, places himself in two. Very quick illustration of the fact that I think that I'm better than John Newton. Boom. I'm not. And when I reread it and I thought about it, I'm like, bro, I might even be in one. We have too high a view of ourselves. As we confess our helplessness to God, we see the fact that everything we are not, he is. And that should lead us to thanksgiving, and we know his actions better. Be more aware of what God is doing in your life. As your view of self-sufficiency dwindles and as you begin to confess that and remove it and understand the helplessness with which we live, then you'll begin to see that all these things that we were taking credit for are his actions. And writing about Wednesday, I, I, I said, I, I experienced great grace from God and being a, a father, a husband, and a pastor. I, I think I do well in those areas. Um, that's not me. That's him. Understanding in those moments that even when God gives us grace to do well and we are faithful and obedient, it's still his actions. Because put in the right situation, I'm helpless. And so our thanksgiving should be knowing his actions better. So we know his attributes better, we know ourselves better, we know his actions better, and finally supplication. This is the part where we actually get to ask for things. And I think once you get through those first three things, you realize that there's not a whole lot to pray for. There's not a whole lot to pray for. What was Jesus' emphasis in his prayer? Your will, your kingdom. This is your thing, God. You acknowledge God for who he is, you acknowledge yourself for who you are, and you take stock of what God has done, there's very little left to pray for. There are things, yes, I, I don't want to tell you not to pray for sickness. I don't want to tell you to not pray for, again, appropriating, using these blessings. I don't want to shut down your prayer life. I just want to redirect it. Know him better. Know yourself better and see what he is doing. And you'll have very little left to pray for other than the fact that, God, your will be done. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what prayer in a Christian living looks like. Next week, we're going to go through many more verses. I think there's, what, six left. And we're going to see some specific ways in this prayer that Paul is, is recounting what God has done as he helps us view ourselves in the correct position and see what God has done. I want to encourage you this week, before we jump into all that, take stock of your prayer life. What are you praying for? Have a journal. Just write everything down. Take stock of what God's doing, where he's answering prayers. The things that he uh, is and his attributes, the things that you realize about yourself, uh, the things that you try to do as you rebel against God and maybe not even realize it. Take stock of these things this week and know God better. Just know him. Beginning, middle, and 
of the Christian life is about knowing God. And next week we'll talk about how to make him known. Let's pray together, and then we'll conclude with a couple of songs. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, you are good to us. You are glorious. And Father, you are all that we need. But I pray this week that you would show us where we are unconsciously consumed with acquiring things that we already have. And Father, we pray your grace in a situation rather than praying for your will to be done in a situation because we already have your grace. And Father, we pray for healing in light of who you are, not in light of what we want. And Father, we pray for wisdom. And as James says, you will give us more than we even need, whatever that means. You give us everything. Father, help us understand how to use it better. Help us understand how to use it to your glory and not to our own self-sufficiency or to our pride or to our kingdom building. But Father, we'd be concerned about your will and what you are doing on this place in our lives and in those around us. Father, in the grand picture of history and your redemptive narrative, Father, let us understand our place in it. And Father, let us live to the praise of your glory. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.